The Gospel, a Basic Truth, is sponsored by One Jump Ahead, a nonprofit sport ministry with a focus on strengthening families on our journey together. They provide a family oriented sport with Christ centered values and a unique look into how jump rope goes hand in hand with the gospel and our daily walk with Christ. Check them out. Go to onejumpahead.org. That's onejumpahead.org. Greetings. Today we are going to look at the testimony of the early church as to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Turn with me, if you will, to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to read verses 3 through 9. Now, the Apostle Paul had written to the believers in Corinth. The church in Corinth was very vibrant. It was big. It was alive. A lot of exciting things going on, and a lot of bad things were going on. And so, Paul, in a couple of letters to the Corinthians, takes the time to go through Scripture with them and admonish them and to to bring them back to to good teaching and to leave the more behavior behind. And now we're getting at the end of his first letter of 1 Corinthians, and he's going to make one more point about that false teaching that they had. And he, he wants to start out by saying, let's remember what the main thing is. What's the main thing? It's the gospel. All right, so I will begin reading. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, although some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, As to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. If we go back up to verse 3, we see a couple of verbs here. I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I received. So this idea of having received something, or having he delivered what he had received himself. All the scholars agree that verses 3 through 7 form essentially a creed or a confession that the early church used to present the gospel. And if you think about it, hundreds, thousands of people are coming uh, into the church, early church, right after the resurrection. And the New Testament hasn't been written yet. They needed to rely on the the teaching ministry of the uh, 11 apostles. And that's a lot of people. So the church found it helpful to come up with essentially a creed or a confession. Creeds or confessions, we take a dictionary definition, and it's this is our beliefs. It could also be a set of guidelines for our behavior. We know that later in time, the the church, because they were dealing with false teaching about the nature of Trinity, came up with the Apostles' Creed. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and on it goes. And then still later, because of false teaching as to the nature of Christ, the Nicene Creed was developed to make sure we all understood, yes, he's fully God, fully man, one person with two natures. Even today, in many of our churches, uh, I would say, if you go to a church that adheres to covenant theology, almost assuredly you have a creed or or a confession, which is often said uh, during your uh, church services about what you believe. Now, I go to a large non-denominational church. We, we do not follow covenant theology. And you would ask us, what do you believe? And we would say, 
we believe what's in the Bible. Uh, but actually, we, we do have you know, a huge multi-page statement of our doctrinal beliefs. But a thing that we do have that is much smaller that we tend to recite is we have a mission statement. And of course, whether you're in a secular world or in a church, mission statement is very short. And uh, so, for instance, uh, we have, I think, uh, four items in our mission statement. And, and one of them is simply love well. All right. So these things are very helpful, uh, especially when you're a, a young or a new Christian. When did Paul get this? We know that Paul met the risen Lord as he was going to Damascus, and he's blinded, and he ends up in Damascus in a room on a bed for three days without eating and drinking. And then the Lord sends to him a believer, a man named Ananias, who delivers God's message and his call to be a, an apostle to the Gentiles. I'm sure Ananias gave him everything else that he needed to know as a brand new Christian. And of course, undoubtedly, these verses 3 through 7 is what Paul was initially given. So this is important as to what the, the church believed. Now, I always say it's helpful if you can memorize Scripture. This is probably a little long for us to memorize. But I'll give you two very brief sentences, the, the two points that are made in this, this great confession, this testimony. Christ died for our sins, and he rose on the third day. Christ died for our sins, and he was raised on the third day. Those two things, that is the gospel right here. Now, what is important in the early church is to show that they have authority for their gospel and that it is verified. So we read again. He says, look, I delivered to you as a first importance, the most important thing, the main thing, what I had received, okay, which is Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Notice, this didn't happen willy-nilly. This is God the Father is the one who said this is going to happen, and we know that because we can see it in Scripture. So, so we, we have authority for what we're saying. So where does it talk about Christ dying for our sins? Well, prophet Isaiah, chapter 53. Paul goes on to say that he was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And again, we, many places, uh, Psalm 16, verse 10. Uh, we can see he was raised. So there is authority for the gospel and everything that happened. It was not just by accident. Now what comes next, and that's the bulk of what we're going to talk about today, is how the early church verified that this happened. How did they verify the, the resurrection? We've got a, a basically five levels of witnesses here. So I'd like you to have this graphic in your mind. Think of a circle, color it yellow with your magic marker. In the middle of that circle, I want you to write the gospel, which is Christ died for our sins, and he was raised on the third day. Now, around that yellow filled-in circle, the gospel, you put five concentric rings. Each one of these rings represents a different type of witness, and that all goes to verifying the actual gospel itself, the middle, the yellow. So what is in the first ring? Christ rose on the third day, according to scriptures, and he appeared to Cephas. 
Cephas is the Greek for the name Peter, so sometimes we see Cephas, sometimes Peter in Scripture. I'm just going to refer to him as Peter or Simon Peter. Why is it important to appear to Peter? Peter is certainly one of the leaders of the early church, and some traditions say he, he was the only leader or the leader. But the Scripture shows that he, he was one of the leaders and a very important leader. So it's important that you, you have a testimony and verification of one of your leaders. So Peter, as uh, the position they had, he was always the spokesman. You always hear him speaking and giving the sermons. It was important that he as a leader saw that and, and can verify the resurrection. But as we know, and from Old Testament, the testimony of one witness is not enough to carry a case in court. In the Old Testament, you needed two or three witnesses to to actually verify anything in court. And so for that, we move now to the second circle. And it says, by the way, Peter uh, probably saw Jesus Easter morning Sunday, probably when he was at the tomb, all right? Now, later uh, Sunday night, Easter Sunday night, we know that Jesus appears in the locked room, and it says here, to the twelve. The 12 was just a way to refer to the apostles. We know that that night, which was probably Sunday night, there was actually only 10 of them in the room. Judas, the betrayer, had already committed suicide, and we know that Thomas was not there that first night. But these are Jesus' disciples, and so now he appears in the second layer, and we can say, well, we don't have just two or three witnesses, we've got We've got 10 now, and that's great. So, so everybody on the, on the core leadership team is now a, a witness for the resurrection. A skeptic, though, would say, eh, you know, th- these guys are too sympathetic to Jesus. They're, they're on his team. They're the core team, and maybe they're not entirely honest, Maybe they uh, are just, uh, you know, sat down and said, hey, we got to get our story straight. Okay, did you see him? Yeah, oh, okay. I mean, that's what a skeptic would say, that they're too close to Jesus and that they may be colluding. So this is a conspiracy. Well, now we go to the third level. And this third level, Jesus appeared now, this third time, to more than 500 brothers at one time. We know that Jesus did not appear in the temple. So wherever Jesus was when he appeared to this group of 500 men, to be sure, there were other people there. There were wives and children. Of course, in that day and age, both in Israel and in Rome, only men could be witnesses. So the point simply is you've got 500 men who are believers who are witnesses. Paul goes on to say that in this confession, they want to make it clear. You can talk to these guys. Most of them are still alive. Now, yeah, some of them have fallen asleep, but, you know, you want to go to Jerusalem, maybe to Nazareth, you want to go to um, um, any place else, you can probably find these guys, and they'll all go, oh, yeah, we were there. I was sitting there next to Marvin and Joey, and we all saw it, and they can verify each other. So now in this third level of testimony uh, to prove the resurrection, you've got too many people to to have a conspiracy or to have people collude. There's no way you're going to get 500-plus wives and children who are going to go along with a scam. 
But the skeptics will say, yeah, 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 these guys weren't colluding, but, you know, they were believers, and, and, and they want to believe. And so maybe they saw something, but they saw what they wanted to see. We might say in our day and age, they saw with rose-colored glasses. And if you think about it, um, it's not like Jesus had his picture in the newspaper. Uh, these 500 didn't see Jesus on nightly news every night. So what did they really see? Even though you talked to them, maybe they didn't quite understood or saw what they wanted to see. So now we go to the fourth level of witness, and this is James. James is at best a neutral witness. All right, we got to talk about James, and this will be hard for some of us. Who is this James? This is not the apostle James, the brother of John. This is the half-brother of Jesus. And we know that because Jesus has already appeared to the apostle James when he appeared to the 12. All right? So all the church has always said that Jesus appeared to James his half-brother. Now, I have to be very clear that me and mine, we follow the Bible. So we only believe what we read in the Bible. What the Bible says is Jesus had brothers and sisters. These would have been half-brothers and sisters. These would have been the children of Mary and Joseph. Now, I know some of you have oral traditions to say, well, these weren't brothers, these were cousins. Well, it doesn't say that. It says brothers. Uh, in fact, we know that uh, two of his brothers, James and Jude, were believers, and we, ha we have their books here in the Bible. Now, obviously, there is a secondary gain issue. It's important in some people's traditions that Mary remain a perpetual virgin, never have children, and that's why we want to make them cousins. But that's not what Scripture says. This was Jesus' half-brother, all right? So Jesus is going to appear to James. James is an important witness for two reasons, and the first being simply is that he is at best neutral or impartial. We know that they grew up together, but James never joined in, in to, to be one of his disciples. Or he, he was not a person that followed Jesus or believed in him, but he was his brother. I'm now going to go down a rabbit trail because I, I want to make a point here about brothers and why and this is going to lead to our second point of why James is so important as a witness. There's a uh, famous uh, comedian, or maybe infamous, depending on where you are, Bill Cosby. Bill Cosby was the uh, great actor, he was a great comedian, and he was the comedian, certainly for my generation. And he had his breakthrough album in comedy back in about 1968. And it was dedicated to my brother Russell, whom I slept with. Now, the, the, whole, uh, the whole album deals with some childhood people that he knew and his experience as a child growing up in Philadelphia. But the, the key name for, you know, for the album is the sketch on his brother and him, Russell. So mom and dad, good parents, raising a family, working class background. And, you know, most working class families have more family than they have house. And so as two little boys... Bill and his brother Russell had to share the same bed. Anyway, he does this comedy routine, and when I heard it, I didn't think I was going to stop laughing because I've been there. 
my dad was a working-class guy, and we lived in a tiny house, 900 square feet. I had one sibling. It was my brother. And for first few years, uh, we had to share a very small bed. And it was exactly as in the, the comedy. Now, where am I going with that? I love my brother. I love him greatly. And I know him. He, he always has a way of stroking his mustache. He has inflection in his voice. We talk to each other all the time. And, you know, when he calls, he calls me by my childhood nickname. I know whatever it is, it's serious. Like I said, we both came from working class background, but we both were fortunate, went to university, and we both entered professions, and he became a surgeon. And he died in April, and I, I'm still in shock, and I'm still in denial. But I tell you, I know my brother. Now I'm going to go back to Jesus and James. You know, their dad was a laborer. I know we say he's a carpenter, but if you look at the Greek, he's a laborer, Okay. I'm sure in Nazareth, it was probably a, a lot less uh, uh, spacious than it was in Philadelphia. I'm sure these two young boys had to share the same ledge somewhere when they slept. Uh, they probably sat at the table according to age. James and Jesus sat next to each other, ate together. They were pretty close in age because James was the next one. All right? So they would have learned Torah together. They would have gone to the workshop, learned how to pound a nail, drill a hole, make a square corner. James also cared about his brother. We know that because the book of uh, Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, about the end of chapter 12, there's this thing that happens that's the turning point in the whole Gospel of Matthew. Anyway, we get to chapter 13, and a lot of things are going on. And Jesus is somewhere with all these people, and Mary, his mother, and his brothers come to rescue him because they think he has gone off the deep end. He's gone manic on him. Now, their hearts were good, but of course, that they, they got it wrong. But we can say about James, he cared about his brother because he was going to go rescue him, he thought. We know that later in life, James, he is a very devout man. He is called James the Just. And it was said of him that he prayed constantly. And he always prayed on his knees. And he prayed so much that that it physically deformed his knees, and they were flat, like a camel's knees. So I think James was a devout man, and I think he cared for his brother, probably didn't understand what was going on. And so now here we are, Jesus appears to James. I don't know how it went down. James is somewhere alone. Is he praying or is he just grieving? Let's say he's grieving. He doesn't understand. How old is James? Well, We know that Jesus started his ministry probably just after he turned 30. By the time of the crucifixion, he'd be 33. So what's James? Eh, 31, 32. He's grieving. And then Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, appears in a room. I think he came from up behind. I think he walked softly and he he put his arm around James's shoulder. He called him by his childhood name. And James is blown away. This is Jesus, my half-brother. Oh my, everything he said was true. He really is the son of God. Oh my, I got it all wrong. Just totally blown away. And here's my second point about James. You know, maybe you can fool 500 people that don't have a good picture of you. 
Maybe your closest friends will collude for you. But you can't fool your brother. James knew who Jesus was. He knew his mannerisms, how he stroked his beard, inflections of his voice. He could say with absolute certainty, this is Jesus. And I saw him, and he was alive, and he had been killed. Now, this is an awesome witness. And then Paul, so this is what the early church would have had. This is a great witness. So they've explained their authority. It comes from Scripture for the things that happened. And we, we've got these levels of verification, all right, all the way up to James, someone who can't be fooled. Now we come to the last witness, and that, of course, is Paul. Paul is totally antagonistic against Jesus, against Christians. Paul tells us that he was one untimely born. So the imagery kind of here is if you think of a normal birth, the child going through the birth canal, right? In contrast, (laughs) Paul is like taken out by cesarean section. I mean, it's just, you know, cut open and pull out. I mean, he, he was just, nothing was normal. And if you think about it, that's exactly his conversion experience. So he actually meets Jesus before he accepts him. Think about that. He is on the road to Damascus, and as I've said before, he is godsmacked. He is knocked off his donkey, he is blinded, and he hears Jesus, the resurrected Son of God, speaking to him. So he is totally antagonistic until he realizes who he's dealing with. Now let's look at a little bit about Paul, just how much of an antagonistic witness he was. He says, he tells us elsewhere that he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. Now, for you and I, we might think, eh, that doesn't sound like a compliment, not in our day and age, but certainly back then it was. A Pharisee of Pharisees. He was one who went out of his way to study and to keep the law of Moses and and to keep the oral traditions of the learned teachers, the kind of folks we call rabbis today. And Saul, Paul, Saul of Tarsus thought, that Jesus was blaspheming by claiming to be God. And what's the penalty for being a blasphemer? It's death, death by stoning. Paul thought that all the believers in Jesus, they too were blaspheming because they were claiming that Jesus was God. Did Paul ever actually kill somebody when he was persecuting the Christians? Well, he never says he does. But enter my world for just a second. Who was the first martyr? It was Stephen. Paul did not stone him. Other men stoned Stephen, the first martyr. But Paul held their cloaks, and he encouraged them. In my world, we call that a co-conspirator. And a co-conspirator is guilty of the same crime as the one who actually does it. So, you know, under many laws, he was a murderer. He hated people who thought differently than he did. And he was not willing to listen to them or hear what they had to say. He was a hater. Now, I'm going to say something, and I'm going to use some modern terminology. It's not a political thing, all right? But Paul is given letters by the chief priest to go to another country and to arrest and seize by any means necessary, including their possessions, and bring believers back to Jerusalem. So, using today's language, Paul was a law enforcement officer. He was going to enforce the law of Moses, he thought. 
And he was given a warrant, except the warrant was not valid. There is nothing in the law of Moses that allows a chief priest to go seize people, bring them out of their houses. And the chief priests have no jurisdiction. That's like a governor telling the state police, okay, here's a warrant. I want you to go to another state, arrest somebody for tax evasion and bring them back. Oh, by the way, you can seize whatever they have when you go to that other state. There was no law that gave them the authority to do that. The only people that could do that were the Romans, and it sure doesn't look like they got permission from the Roman governors in either of those jurisdictions. I say this because Paul was a smart man. He knew exactly that he was not on good ground when he was going to execute that warrant. Okay, he knew he was breaking the law, but in his zeal, he didn't care. I don't know how else you can describe this. Again, the point simply is, He hated Jesus. He hated Christians. And he believed with all his heart he was doing God's work. And he was entirely wrong. What kind of witness is this? Well, he's a witness that could say, yeah, I did want to kill all these people. And then I met Jesus. He really was alive. And I talked to him. And he smacked me. The early church has some great evidence to verify the gospel, and they wanted to make sure that you knew that when you came into the church. And so that is the presentation here. I think you can read this. Remember the two sentences, right? Christ died for our sins, and he rose on the third day. So you can encourage yourself as you see these increasing levels of testimony to verify the claims. You can also take a friend or family member, and you can go through this. And you say, look, these are eyewitnesses. Look at what kind of skin they had in the game or didn't have in the game. And yet they all, even the antagonistic ones said, I was there, I saw it, and that's what changed my mind. These are things that can encourage us. Friends, let me close this with a a word of prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the witness of the early believers we thank you how it's just all-encompassing and, and that we can know for sure that our Lord Jesus Christ died and that he rose from the dead. Lord, help us to be an encouragement to our families and friends. In Jesus' name, amen.